Heba, where are we catching you right now? Well, uh, right now I'm in Juba, South Sudan. Um, as much as I wanted to be in Khartoum to continue covering the Sudan revolution, we can't do that as Al Jazeera because as a network, we were banned just a few days before what is now known as the Monday massacre happened. More than 100 Sudanese protesters were killed on Monday, June the 3rd, according to reports. And Sudan's military government tried to hide it from the world. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. As you probably know, if you've been listening to our podcast, we talk to Al Jazeera journalists about the stories they're covering. But today is a little different. Today's story is about protesters in Sudan who were killed by their own government and our journalists who were barred from reporting on it. So we're talking to Hiba Morgan, our reporter who's been covering Sudan. This isn't the first time we've had you on here at The Take, Hiba. You are from South Sudan, but you've lived in the north of course, it only became South Sudan versus Sudan close to eight years ago. I'm originally from uh, South Sudan from 2011. Up until now, um, I'm from South Sudan, but my mother is from Sudan. So basically, I'm from both countries. Or as I just like to call it, I'm from the Sudans. You told us before um, that growing up in Sudan, you wanted to be a journalist. Where did that dream come from? So my father was a diplomat and... I got to travel around a lot and meet different people. And I, I I was always interested in telling people's stories to other people. So I think that's where it all started. And I remember when I was in sixth grade and I told my mom that I wanted to be a journalist, she just freaked out and it was all it was written all over her face that she didn't think it was a good idea. But yeah, here I am. And uh, I spoke to her a few days back and she said, yeah, this is exactly why I didn't want you to be a journalist. Um, trying to report fairly and accurately uh, sometimes gets you in trouble with certain governments. For instance, they stop you from reporting and doing your job. And that's exactly what happened in Sudan. Hiba, you've been covering these protests there for more than six months. This whole thing started in December, and people were protesting because they couldn't get bread. Everything is expensive. The prices have been going up, and there are so many things we can't buy. And then there is the bread crisis. And then by April, Sudan's president, Omar Bashir, was ousted, which for the protesters seemed like a big win. This revolution was achieved by the people and the army. Everyone will work for a better united Sudan. But their movement has always pushed for a civilian government heading the country. And there's still this military government that's in charge. So let's start at the end of May. The Muslim fasting month of Ramadan was ending and pressure was building and the protesters were holding this sit-in right in front of the military headquarters. There were all these white tents full of people there to protest peacefully. And then on May 29th, you went to talk to protesters like you'd been doing every day what was the scene like then? Yeah, we walked in, got searched by the protesters to make sure we were not armed, even though at this point we were familiar faces. So some people enjoying cultural dances, you know, people coming to take part in the revolution. They've been called and they were chants. 
and we saw the sunrise and some of them were sleeping in different parts of the city and different corners. Others were awake and they said because, you know, we're, we're the night shift protesters. We, we stay awake because it's our job to guard the revolution at night. It's a Sudanese tradition before Eid that women would bake biscuits. So in one corner, that's what women were doing. They were baking biscuits um, to distribute to the people on Eid. And later that day, it's May 30th now, something happens to you. Well, to the whole Al Jazeera team, actually. Now, Sudan's Transitional Military Council has also ordered the office of the Al Jazeera Media Network in Khartoum to be shut down without giving any reason at all. Protesters have been staging a sit-in outside military headquarters. So we had finished uh, filming at the sit-in. The bureau, the Al Jazeera bureau, is in a building uh, not far from where the sit-in is. And Al Jazeera Arabic, which is also in that bureau, uh, they had staff who were still there and then they got a call and they were told that uh, you guys can no longer operate and we're on our way and we will be coming to confiscate your equipment and lock your offices. So they were shutting Al Jazeera's reporting operation down. So we made our way to the office and when we got there, we found a military pickup truck, two actually, on both sides of the road, uh, loaded with machi- machine guns and RPGs. Oh, wow. Soldiers around the building. And then we got to the fourth floor where the bureau is. And we found national security officers, uh, delegates from the Ministry of Information um, and from uh, the military council. So men in military uniform. And they were telling us, you know, that um, you can no longer operate. We asked for a reason, obviously, you know, why Why are we not allowed to continue working? And they said, the military council said that. And for them, that's reason enough. We couldn't even take like normal files. We could only take our, our personal laptops or a lot of things were left behind. And then they closed the office. We handed them the key and we left. And uh, the pickups remained and soldiers remained around the building. As you're retelling the story, you're saying it so calmly. And of course, you have the, the benefit of hindsight and, and, and of safety now speaking to us from Juba and South Sudan. But in the moment, were you confused? Were you panicking? What was going through your head? I was confused and uh, we wanted to know what what brought about this decision, you know. And we were quite worried that, you know, when we come downstairs and and, and are about to leave, then the military would make a move to try to arrest us. And our concern was that, you know, if we're all arrested, who's going to start making calls to find out where we are and, and, and try to get us out or at least make sure that people know where we are? Because at that point, the whole bureau was actually in the office. I remember my colleague Imran saying, you know, we we have to find a way to basically vent this frustration. And especially, um, you know, he looked at me and he said, you know, like, whatever I'm feeling right now, I just have to write it out because other than other than that, I would go crazy because... The colleague you mentioned, Imran Khan, he's one of Al Jazeera's war correspondents. He was there with you covering the revolution. He actually sent us some voice memos from Khartoum. You know, it's frustrating not being able to be a journalist and be out on the streets and interviewing people because we're banned. It's frustrating that I can't go out onto the streets because there are so many soldiers around and... And so it's not worth running into one and then having a gun pointed at you um, uh, when you can't do any journalism anyway. So right now, yeah, um, I'm not worried, but certainly there's a concern. And 
I know Imran a bit. He must have been concerned for you being from the Sudans, as you say. He knows that as a Sudanese, it, it, it would have an impact on me personally, not just professionally, but personally. And he was, he, he was very careful to make sure that, you know, that it didn't reach that level where I would just break down and, and they wouldn't know what to do. So on May 30th, a Thursday, the Al Jazeera team was told they had to close shop. But other reporters and outlets are still reporting and the protests are continuing through the weekend. And then it's Monday, June 3rd. Lots of protesters are out again, and they were expecting some kind of reaction from the military government. They were hoping that if they were there in large numbers, then uh, the military would not make a move because that would mean more victims, more people killed. And so they were hoping that a large turnout would deter an attack. And then I got a message from somebody there saying, there's no electricity at the sit-in. They were saying that that the, the, the military has cut off the electricity and, and that was not a good sign for them. And they were worried that in the darkness, that the military would be able to spread around. And then two hours later, I got the first message from somebody there saying, they're shooting at us. That's how it all started. Or actually, that's how it started coming to an end. There were 60 people that were reportedly killed uh, on the first day, including some of them who got gunshot injuries from the first day and then died on the second day. Then there was a figure of 40 bodies that were recovered, uh, retrieved from the Nile. Bodies are being pulled out of the River Nile, at least 40 so far, according to Sudan's main doctors group. I can't even imagine what that is like being in that moment where you're almost forced to sit on your hands. If you can take the journalist's hat off for a second and just talk to us about what that's like as a, a human being, what that's like as a, a native of Sudan. It was, um, I would like to use the word heartbreaking, but it's, that would be an understatement. Um, it, it was like the world was coming to an end, you know, um, seeing uh, the live streams and the coverage rolling hearing the gunshots outside um, our hotel, seeing the soldiers outside our hotel, uh, and then looking at the screens and seeing protesters running for their lives and, and knowing that they, they, they can't stand, you know, and they, they've been saying the slogans over and over again that, you know, they wouldn't disperse the city as long as we are alive. Apparently, um, the, the military took that slogan seriously and uh, started firing at all the protesters, making sure that if we have to disperse the city by killing you all, so then be it. And at that point, you feel helpless, Malika. You know, they, they, these are your, these are your countrymen and these are your, um, any kind, they were not posing any kind of threat. They just came there to make their voices, voices heard. And, and there would have been so many ways, peaceful ways to make them go back home. Instead, they were shot down. And then as we were there watching those videos and trying to reach out to people that we knew, most of us broke down that day. People died, you know, all because they just wanted a better future, a fair future. Did you personally know anyone who was directly affected? 
so the first few hours I knew a few people I couldn't get a hold of. Eventually I did get a hold of them. There's some people still unaccounted for um, that I know. And I've tried reaching out to them and we couldn't get a hold of them. So at this point, and with them not being in any hospitals and knowing that there were bodies that were recovered from the Nile and from the sit-in that the military disposed of, we are just assuming that that they're among those bodies. I'm so sorry, Hiba. I'm, I'm so sorry to hear that. So many people have been killed. And you and Imran and Al Jazeera Arabic are still there in this moment and still barred from reporting. We were staying in the hotel. We couldn't leave because of the soldiers outside and, and we could hear gunshots going on and on. And this is Imran describing the period after the massacre. It's a little after 10 a.m. and uh, the streets are completely empty here in Khartoum. Uh, the brutal crackdown on the protesters has meant that very few people are out on the streets. Very few shops are open. The protest movement has called for a campaign of civil disobedience. Effectively, what that means is putting Khartoum and other places within Sudan uh, on lockdown. So I'm just looking down the street at my hotel and um, there is nothing. There is nothing open. People are scared. People seem to be scared to come out on the streets, so they're fighting back by staying at home. It looks like the, the RSF uh, are patrolling the streets, but there's very few people out. Um, and we've been trying to leave uh, the country. However, we've run into problems with bureaucracy, and now the airport is shut. And then something else happens. The Sudanese government shuts the internet down. Hundreds of protesters have been arrested and the internet is cut. So now it's not just you and the other reporters who can't tell the world what's happening in Sudan. The protesters themselves can't get the word out. So the internet blackout happened after the attack started. And people believed uh, that the internet blackout happened because a lot of people were live streaming the attack as it was happening. They were recording videos of it and uploading it on social media. And so the internet access was cut off so that most of the people who took pictures could not upload to show how terrible that attack was on unarmed protesters, you know. Um, let's, let's make it clear, all the social media videos circulating around are just bits and pieces of what really happened that day. So this has me thinking, what, what did actually happen? The, the military, I saw is saying that they decided to disperse the sit-in, pretty much admitting some role in what ended up being more than 100 Sudanese dead, according to the Central Committee of Sudan Doctors. Shamsuddin Kabashi, the military spokesperson, said, and I'm quoting here, we regret that some mistakes happen. Some mistakes. What do we know about who was shooting, who was armed? Well, the protesters were definitely not armed. We've been at that sit-in every day since uh, April. And so we know for sure the protesters are not armed. The only people who carried arms were the rapid support forces and the military. And protesters said that men in police uniform, but who they highly suspect were from the rapid support forces, were also there with whips and canes and guns. And you couldn't get out at that point. Airlines started canceling their flights. Um, 
saying because of the situation they couldn't land but most of the calls didn't go through because of the the clampdown on the networks so it, it was just a situation where we were stuck effectively we were stuck so there's a bigger picture here it's not just Khartoum or even Sudan this involves the whole region but I want to talk about the rapid support forces you and Imran mentioned. Let's start there. You're saying the protesters are blaming them for this massacre. Who was pulling the strings here? Who were the players? Well, uh, the main players that we know of is uh, the head of the military council, Abdel Fattah Burhan. And his number two, his deputy, was uh, Mohammed Hamdan Tagalo, or as he's famously known as Himeti. This is Sudan's most unpopular man. Mohammed Hamdan Daglo is the commander of the Rapid Support Forces. They were made up of fighters from the notorious Janjaweed militia who were accused of killing tens of thousands of people in the Darfur region. And people strongly believe, rightfully so, because uh, he was the one who was most vocal and is in charge and his forces are in charge. Uh, they believe that he's the one who's running the show. So let me take you a little bit back uh, to who Himeti is. He's mm-hmm. uh, the head of um, the Rapid Support Forces. And those forces uh, have been, uh, they were created in 2013 from remnants of uh, a militia known as the Janjaweed. Now, if people remember Darfur as all, mm. then the name or the word Janjaweed would not be something they're unfamiliar with. It was, uh, it was the militia that was basically responsible for destroying lots of villages. And they were known for a policy known as scorched earth policy. So they would just raid villages mm-hmm. and uh, burn the villages to the ground. And they were accused of uh, human rights, uh, atrocities, war crimes, crimes against humanity. Hamdan's men are accused of carrying out atrocities while allied to the government. He said that in fact the government recruited him personally to fight against the Darfuri rebels in 2003. They're known to be using rape as a weapon of war and a lot of women have reported that they were victims of rape by these forces or they've witnessed people who were victims of rape and killing by these forces. Those forces still exist, except now they're, they have the name of the Rapid Support Forces. So they've changed the name, but the same man is in charge and he's now the deputy of this uh, transitional military council. Yes, indeed. And uh, he seems to be the one calling the shots. He was the first person in the military council to start making uh, trips outside Sudan. And and that got people a bit uh, worried because uh, he went to Saudi Arabia and people were worried that all the words coming from from the military council and all these attempts to charm them and tell them that you know we're part of you we're we're standing mm. by your side they were waiting for those words to be backed by actions and that's something they say they have never seen and this was all happening before the big crackdown the monday massacre it was a few weeks earlier at the end of may that the military council leaders take these trips hamedi heads to saudi arabia and General Abdel Fattah Burhan heads to Egypt and the UAE. The fact that Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates and Egypt voiced their support for this military council and, you know, and gave it recognition when it's not even a transitional government. That's when protesters started feeling wary. You know, they said that we don't have a government in place yet. What we have is a military council that is supposed to be working with the opposition to form a transitional government. But they're getting foreign backing. You know, they're getting aid from from several countries. I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, Reuters reported not too long ago, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates had agreed to send Sudan $3 billion worth of aid. 
Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates are fighting a war in Yemen. Now, the foot soldiers are mostly Sudanese soldiers uh, being provided for by the Rapid Support Forces, who, once again, I would remind you, is headed by the deputy head of the military council. So Hamedi is in charge of Sudan's Rapid Support Forces and sending soldiers from the Rapid Support Forces to Yemen to fight the Saudi-led war there. At the end of 2018, Saudi Arabia was accused of recruiting Sudanese children from Darfur to fight on its behalf in Yemen. The deputy head of the military council, Hemeti, came out and said, we will continue with the with the battle in Yemen. We will continue fighting in the war in Yemen and we will not pull our troops out. So when he started making those statements, that's when people knew that it means he knows that he's not going to give up power. So he feels confident making them. And, and they know that he got that confidence because... He visited, you know, Saudi Arabia and Emirates, and he knows that they they have his back and they're going to continue keeping him there and they're going to support him. They're willing to support him against his own people. Sudanese people were no longer fighting just the Transition Military Council. They were fighting Egypt, they were fighting Saudi Arabia, and they were fighting the Emirates because these were the countries that were backing the military council against the protesters. I want to play this from Imran Khan while he was stuck in the Khartoum Hotel because he was thinking about the influence of these countries too because these are countries that have also banned Al Jazeera. After uh, the military rulers met with leaders of Saudi Arabia, UAE and Egypt, um, then a ban was issued for Al Jazeera. Whether those two um, events are connected um, hasn't been publicly confirmed, um, but everything we're being told is that... uh, Perhaps they will, they might well be. And then there was the Monday massacre. Sudan's military council says they gave the order to clear the sit-in. Now it looks like they're acting conciliatory. They're saying they want talks again, but it's going to be hard to rebuild trust. And the protesters want democracy, but they're willing to take it slow. They've seen what happened to their neighboring countries after the Arab Spring, and they don't want that. But at this point, the deck does seem stacked against the protesters. What are they doing in the face of this? What's their next move? People are naming the names of the people who were killed. And they're saying that, you know, we're not ready to give up. We are not ready to let the military take control. We, we, we're ready to resist until the very end. People have lost their lives. We're not going to give up now, you know. So how did you end up getting out eventually? Well, um, I got on a plane. Uh, it was very hard to get a flight because most flights were booked. Um, the only way to fly was fly, uh, through Ethiopia. So people who had to leave for work, people who had to uh, leave for medical reasons, people who just wanted to leave because they wanted a safer place to live in, they were all relying on that. So it was hard for uh, all of us as a team to be able to get like seats on Ethiopian Airlines. Eventually we did. And we got out and um, I made my way to Ethiopia. And then uh, from there onwards, got the next flight back home to Juba. Now that you're safe in Juba, have you been able to get back in touch with some of the people you had to leave behind? Uh, Like I said, I do have family and friends there. So I do. uh, I've reached out to them since I've left. Um, And they're saying that the internet blackout is not just making people not aware of Sudan outside Sudan, but themselves, you know, amongst themselves, they, they've relied so heavily on WhatsApp messages and checking social media and communicating via social media that they, um, they, they haven't, they're having an issue trying to 
pass on information, not just amongst themselves as protesters, but, you know, as, as family. So, so, and, and they don't know what to do. You know, uh, they hear that there's a civil disobedience. So they stay at home. Then they hear that it's been canceled. So should they go back to work? And then they step out of the house and they find soldiers in front of the house. So then they go back in. So effectively, it's a forced civil disobedience, whether they wanted to or not. You know, they're worried that at this rate, with the rumors spreading and with the only alternative being obviously the state television, which doesn't show anything else besides what the military council wants, they're worried that this revolution would die. So what is it like being back in Juba and not being in Khartoum? It it feels like, um, you know, as reporters, we're used to being in the heart of the story, you know, and and to feel it and live it so we can tell it as best and as accurate uh, as we can. And that is going to be very hard right now. The fact that I'm able to get out and that other people can't and all because they just wanted a better future, a better life, and they, they're paying the price for it. Will you go back to Sudan? Yeah. Uh, yes, definitely. I mean... Khartoum is one of my homes. Um, I have family and relatives there. So yeah, I will go back. It'll be a shame that I won't be able to report. Um, but I will be able to go back and um, see how things are doing every now and then. So Hiba, you told us that when you were a sixth grader, you decided to become a journalist. Did you ever see anything like this in your future? No. Um I no, I certainly do not envision that. I did not uh, expect to to see this, and not worst worst part of it all is that you know you'd be seeing and 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 living it, but you can't report on it. So I didn't I did not think that I would be living this time. But here we are. Um, yeah, this is something I did not really uh, think I'd be living through. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters with Nay Alvarez, Dina Kispe, Morgan Waters, Priyanka Tilve, Alexandra Locke, and me, Malika Bilal. Luke Rohr was the sound designer. Natalia Aldana is the social media producer. Raylan Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. Saad Turjman helped us out with translation this week. And of course, a very special thanks to Hiba Morgan and Imran Khan. If you haven't subscribed to the show yet, go to aljazeera.com slash the take. You can find subscribe links there. And if social media is more your thing, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You'll find us at AJ the take. And if you like the show, tell your friends, have them listen and subscribe too. We'll be back next week. <laughs>